1: It's Fitz, and if you don't know who I am, here's a quick bio. I'm a veteran sports journalist who writes, does TV, radio, and is a longtime podcaster. Also, I have stage four prostate cancer, so during the initial stages of the COVID-19 outbreak, my doctors advised me to stay at home. But now, a little more than a year later, I'm fully vaccinated, and I've rejoined society. But I'm still continuing this podcast when I'm calling the many friends, athletes, coaches, and colleagues who I've met throughout my 30 years in this industry. Plus, this year, I'm going to be calling some people and making new friends. Oh, and I'm hitting the record button. Welcome to my life and the Life of Fits podcast. What if I told you there's a gentleman in Manhattan, Kansas, who's basically a walking encyclopedia of Kansas State sports, 60s on. It's amazing what Larry Weigel carries around in his head and has put down to paper and into emails for all to enjoy with his Triangulate News newsletter. Larry played at Kansas State, was recruited by Tex Winter, played for him was a member of the 1964 Final Four team, went on to be a graduate assistant under Tex, and then also was on the coaching staffs for both Cotton Fitzsimmons and Jack Hardman. And then he moved off into fundraising, working for the university, the private sector, and life went on. But some of us have known about Larry Weigel for quite a while. He's doing a yeoman's effort to keep the history of Kansas State sports alive and well, and particularly the legacy of Tech's winner and what he meant for Kansas State, and college basketball. Larry still works for Keating Associates on a part-time basis, a company he helped found, and does continue to service clients, and it's pretty cool. Very visible in the community of Manhattan, but we better not forget how important he is to the history of K-State sports. Now let's call Larry Weigel in Manhattan, Kansas. Hello, this is Larry. Hey, Larry, Tim Fitzgerald. Hey, Tim. Good to talk to you. Good to talk to you. How are you doing today?
0: Well, I am doing really good. I'm indoors, and it's
1: (laughs) really cool. That's the key lately, isn't it? Just stay out of the... Yes.
0: Well, let's go back
1: uh, and fill in the gaps. Uh, Give me your background. When did you play at Kansas State basketball, and uh, how did you end up at Kansas State?
0: Okay, I came uh, in 1962 as a freshman. I was recruited by Tex Winner and um, also was recruited by uh, KU and Wichita State and Tex. Uh, Came out, a low key, kind of recruiting. Met me at a, a restaurant in Hayes, Hayes City, America, at, a, at a, a bowling alley restaurant. How's that for recruiting? That's nice. And then, uh, then I came down for a visit. But the uh, the big influencer was probably Ken Mahoney, who was, who was a really good friend of Tex. And Mahoney was uh, had played, you know, in the nineteen forty eight Final Four team and. He was very involved in, in basketball with techs. They were good friends, and so I came down one time on a visit, and I think that influenced me to come to K-State. But KU was uh, – I was originally going to go to KU. Ted Owens was an, was an outstanding recruiter, and he called me as a uh, junior – you know, call back then they could call the high school. So they I get a call, hey, there's a call from a University of Canada basketball assistant. You know, that's a big deal. So anyway, that's how I got here. I played freshman ball in nineteen sixty two. Ron Paradis was on that group. Mm-hmm. Uh, my sophomore year. I, I got hurt and uh, was redshirted on the final four team, but I played, I was the head of the scout team. Um, and so I was, I was a redshirt 1964 when they went to the final four, but I was very involved with the team. And then I played for Tex 65, 66, 67. And I stayed on as a grad assistant with Tex winter one year. And then, uh, he left to go to Washington university and then cotton and Simmons took over and I was his assistant two years. And then he left to go to Phoenix suns. And then Jack Hartman hired me for one year. And then I left after that and went into the, uh, fundraising for K state. So in, four years I was an assistant under three pretty good coaches
1: that's incredible that's absolutely incredible what all did you learn from those three guys and how were they different how do they go about things differently and the same I guess
0: well differently Tex was uh Tex was very uh detail oriented extremely detailed he was uh um uh, he he taught basketball like you would teach geometry. Everything had to do with with spacing, floor spacing, cutting angles, uh, details, uh, lots lots of drills. Um, had you pre- get you prepared for the game? So his was a his was more of a. Uh, Uh, Bill Snyder, K-State coach Bill Snyder approach of let the defense name the play. We never had plays. We didn't come down and raise your finger. We we all had to know what everybody was doing at the same time, what to run. So that was the key on Tex. On Cotton, he learned a lot from Tex. Cotton had won two National Junior College Championships. And he once told me he couldn't believe the knowledge of Tex and all the terms. So Cotton was more of a, uh, he was geared for the NBA. He was a fast break coach, um, liked to move the ball a lot, was very, uh, he was more, very um, bubbly kind of guy, you know, with the players. He, he was uh, always talking a lot, giving encouragement, uh, very likable, um, Type of guy Hartman was a little little stricter. He was more uh, when Jack came, it all its things changed uh, dramatically, and I was I could see uh, it was very interesting. Jack was more old school. Henry Iba played for you know, Hank Iba, where he wouldn't become involved with players. back during recruiting, he'd be the last coach to see him, and he believed that the discipline and distance was the way to to do it. And he was very effective, um, in doing it. He was an outstanding coach. He was a very smart guy. He was uh, like country music. He could talk on, on about any subject. Huh. And I spent a whole year with him traveling everywhere. I was, I was a freshman coach that year. And it was long. It was a uh, long First, year as a freshman than the last year that we had freshman basketball in 1970. So I I coached the freshman team, Kruger, Danny Beard, Larry Williams, and Gene McFay. And then I traveled with Hartman. And so we got to, uh, we really got, got acquainted. Jack was a, uh, in comparing the three coaches, Cotton was more designed as a fast-break NBA coach Tex was more traditional, uh, discipline, um, getting everybody involved. You know, you, everybody in the offense. Hartman was the defensive master of defense. He was uh, he was brilliant on the defensive side. On uh, and that's to me was his biggest, biggest success. So.
1: Well, my That's guess, kind of my guest last week on this was Lon Kruger, and I understand you played a role in his recruitment.
0: Yes, yes, I did. We recruited him on a bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich <laughs> in those days. We had uh, he was a, he was like a junior, and Cotton Fitzsimmons says, "Hey, why don't we bring in?" Um, that Lonnie Kruger, he's over at Silver Lake. I hear good things about him, let's bring him in for a visit. So he comes for his visit and I show him around campus. And those days, the visit was, you know, you showed him the campus, give him a little tour, and then they got to go to the football game and sit in the press box. I mean, that was a real, real thrill. So anyway, Kruger and I are on campus uh, showing him around and we're running out of time. And I called my wife, Kay, and I said, Hey, I'm over here on campus with Lonnie Krueger. Uh, we we need lunch. You know, we got to get to the football game. Did you fix this lunch? So we went by my house, and she fixed bacon, lettuce, and tomato. So I always tell Kruger that we recruited him on a bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich. It's a big recruit. And then we took, went to the foot, football game. <laughs> that, was, that was the recruiting trip.
1: That's amazing. That's amazing. And really, to get him to K-State, it was more about baseball than other schools, wasn't it?
0: Yes. Well, what happened was uh, we had we wanted him, and we're going to offer half baseball uh, and half basketball scholarship. Bob Brazier wanted him for baseball, and Cotton wanted him for basketball. But then Cotton left. Everything changed and everything was up in the air, and Lon had not signed because he was offered a contract with the Houston Astros, a $5,000 um, bonus contract. And his dad, Don Kruger, said, nah, you better hold out, you know, don't, don't go. That doesn't sound good enough. So he held out, thinking he was going to play baseball. And then Jack Hartman comes in, and in that summer, uh, Fred White calls Hartman and says, you know, Lon Kruger may be one of the best players around and nobody, and he's not signed. So Hartman goes over to Silver Lake and signs him from K-State. And that's how we got Lon. The Jack, Jack signed him, Jack Hartman. And then shortly after Hartman calls me, I was out at a basketball camp with Tex Winter out in Washington. And Hartman called me and offered me the assistant coaching job and freshman coach. And I said, yep, sounds good to me. So that's kind of how that all came about.
1: Very cool. But you eventually got out and started getting into fundraising. Take me through the rest of your career then.
0: Yeah, I did. And people asked me why, you know, how come you uh, – why did you get out of, of coaching? Well, back then, you know, um, we, we spent so many hours. I think I made 25 cents an hour or something. I was hired for uh, $11,000. But Hartman was one of the highest paid. I, in fact, I did a story on this, uh, researched it. When he was hired at K-State in 1970, they said he was one of the highest paid Coaches in the country, at twenty-one thousand five hundred dollars. Oh man! And uh, K-State finally got it up to thirty-five five or something, and they said we'll give you a TV show and you can have your camp. So between a base salary and a camp and a TV show, I think he got up to thirty-five. But with we spent so much time um, that year, I think Jack was very frustrated because we weren't winning. And the kids didn't, you know, didn't know his system. And I had an opportunity. I was, I had a young, well, Nick was only barely two years old. And we, we, we were, we worked every night. We'd go up there from eight to midnight to, and I, so I just decided, you know, for 11,000 bucks or whatever. Oh, I got some camp money too. But I just felt like, man, this is. Uh, i had an offer to go over to the kc foundation and, and be uh in charge of fundraising and it was a much a pretty good offer not you know, to turn down so i jumped out of coaching but i miss i miss the uh i look back and think of how the knowledge that i that, that i gained was so i i could have probably been a pretty good coach if i'd stayed in it
1: how long did you stay with the foundation?
0: I was there seven years, and then uh, I was alumni director. Uh, the alumni position opened up, and I became the uh, K-State. Back then, they call it executive director. Now they call it uh, Amy Renz worked for me, and they, they call it president. And she's been there for umpteen years. But I was there 10 years in the uh, alumni association So I spent 10 as an alumni director, seven as a fundraiser. And then I went into business with, with Pat Keating. It's a local financial planning firm. And I was been with him 30 years. And, uh, but I still kept a hand in, you know, I enjoy writing. And so I kind of came up with particularly Tex. I I maintained a very close relationship with Tex and Nancy Winter, uh, you know, throughout my my whole time that I knew him, and so that's kind of yeah. why I kept this interest. It,
1: it must have been really neat for someone who was close with him to see what all happened in his career.
0: Oh yeah, it was it was unbelievable to um, um, to watch you know to watch him go. I know. Leaving K-State was, uh, you know, everybody was, was, was kind of shocked when, when he left. In fact, Cotton, Simmons told me that um, when, when Tex told him he was leaving, they were driving to Hutchison to go to a junior college tournament. Cotton was driving the car, and Tex tells Cotton, hey, I'm going to leave K-State, and I'm going to recommend you for the job. And um, Cotton said he about drove off the road. <laughs> he was he was so surprised. And so nobody knows, ever knows what why he what he chose to leave K State. And I, I never, he's never told me. Um, my my gut feeling is, and I have no basis to verify it, but. At the time, um, football was, you know, Vince Gibson came in and we were trying to get football going. And Ahern, uh, practicing in Ahern was like a zoo. Everybody, um, we had the dirt floors and there was no facilities. So Vince Gibson comes in and, and text Winner is the ultimate. You know, a coach with a heart, good guy. He, you know, he, he was, um, down deep. He was, he was hard to tell anybody. No. So Vince said, can I bring my football players in and run up and down the stairs? Text it. Yeah. Okay. And then track guy said, can we run the track? Text said, Okay. So we got track guys running track, football in the sand. This is during our practice. (laughs) And the baseball players put up, they were playing, hitting balls. They had a big cage down in the south end of the court. And they had a cage. And the pole vaulters were pole vaulting on the east side during our practice. All in Ahern. And Tex was was a pole vaulter in college. You know, he was an Olympic, almost an Olympic type and he would actually actually help pole bowlers once in a while go over and help them with their grip. And uh, it all stopped when um, Jeff Webb was, when Cotton was coaching and Jeff Webb was hit in the back with a shot put on practice. Oh, and a shot putter, strong shot put. Can you believe that? Oh, my. And, this is all in Ahern. And In fact, I was going to do, I, I am probably going to do a story. It was like a circus, and then the dust would raise, and then football was the rage. And I think down deep, maybe Tex felt, you know, you never leave because of money or, or whatever. I, I think he just, I don't know, it, it may have been a combination of all those things, and he was, you know, everybody was, and here's basketball was was the kingpin, and then all of a sudden we got all this stuff going on, and maybe I, I think I think maybe he was uh, <clears throat> maybe lack of attention or something, you know, you when you're a coach and you're. you're but that's my theory, and it has no basis of, of of there's no factual basis to this. This is just I've always wondered. Why he left, but that was my feeling. That after watching all of this happen, you know, everything changed dramatically uh, in in Ahern during practice with with everything I just told you. That's amazing. So I think he might have thought, well, you know, I move on.
1: But Ahern was such a. Wonder of the world back then. I mean, it it is. You still walk in it and you go, "Wow, this is a big place." But back then, it was absolutely amazing facility to have on your campus, wasn't it?
0: Oh yeah, we couldn't hear uh, when I played. When I came home after playing in a game, my ears would ring for at least two or three hours, and we. I'm sure. I now have. I wear hearing aids, and when I went to get them, they. I said, "Were you ever around a place with real loud noises?" And they said, "Yes, House. Fieldhouse." <laughs> um, but we couldn't hear in practice. And Tex used chalk. What's really amazing? He would. We had the, the the cord had a purple color around the sides, and he, we didn't he didn't have a. Uh, he used chalk. He had chalk in his pocket and he came out and dropped plays on the Purple part. You know, we couldn't hear that, you know, during timeouts. I mean, it was unbelievable. That's one of the things that
1: is a clear memory of mine about Ahern is, is how loud it was during timeouts. Now we take TV breaks and everyone sits down and and, you know, listens to some ads on the big screen TV. But... Back then, the fans were almost at their loudest during the timeout because they knew the other coach couldn't communicate with his team. In fact, I remember watching Bob Knight throw his clipboard down when Jack Hartman was coached and just kind of walk out of
0: his home. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I believe it. Yeah, and what's even amazing is back in my day, there was the, the announcer to come out and say, there will be no smoking until halftime. <laughs> you know, so, so people could smoke at halftime and then the restrooms were so small. The lines were huge, but yeah, no smoking till halftime. And then the dust by the end of the, and in fact, after practices, after what I explained about how everybody was using Ahern, the dust was would be so high. It looked like a fog, like an LA fog and and the and the equipment managers they would have to wet mop the floor every time every practice wet mop because of the dirt
1: crazy crazy it it is such a <laughs> an incredible place and i feel like uh i'm only 57 and i feel like when i talk about ahern field house or ahern depending on who told you how to say it um it it feels like I'm describing walking to school in snow uphills both ways because it just seems, <laughs> you know, like it was just yeah. all better when I was younger and, and Ahern Fieldhouse was just amazing um, and it was so loud. Oh, yeah, Bramwell's gets loud. No, you don't quite understand what I'm saying. Ahern Fieldhouse got so oh, yeah, loud whoa. you couldn't think.
0: Well, it was so loud, even uh, one of the comments, one of my, I've, I've done about 100 blog stories, and I did one on the Fab Four of my four freshmen, Kruger, Beard, McVeigh, and Williams, and Gene McVeigh made the statement about what he remembered most was sitting in the locker room getting chills when he could hear the crowd in the locker room. And he would get chills, you know, running up and down, just the the adrenaline. And then them to come out, and it was just, you know, it was unbelievable. You're right; it was, it was something it, it hard to describe unless you really witnessed
1: it. Uh, I've told this story before on my other podcast, but when I was a student journalist at K-State, it was in the final years of the Fieldhouse, and. <laughs> Uh, You know, back then, you had to climb up into the crow's nest for media seating. So you climbed up a ladder, which is just unbelievable nowadays to think about. You had to do that. Uh, You climb up a ladder into that crow's nest, and I'm sitting up there. And I believe Lonnie was coach, and it was a KU game. And it was so loud in the old barn that there was a big old royal typewriter sitting down on the wooden table that we all were sitting at, and it's what they used to type up the stats, the play-by-play. Now it's all computerized, but oh, back yeah. then someone had to be good enough at typing to get everything right uh, and type up as the game went on, and it got so loud... In a Hearn that day, this big old typewriter started vibrating down the table. It was almost bouncing down the table <laughs> so loud. And, and I remember back then thinking, "This can't be good for my ears. This this can't be good." No, no, no. It was just a wall of noise. It was you couldn't scream oh, yeah. to the person next to you. And of course, the the crow's nest was up there by the ceiling, so you got a lot of reverberation. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That was
0: that was way. And then the clock. We had a, a round clock. And it, it. I think we won more games with that clock. It was so confusing down the last minute, how much time was left. Now we knew, we knew what was happening, but if you look, you had to look up on this clock. It was right under the crow's nest, and uh, it, it was circular. It went around, and you. I mean, it was, it was, it was hard to know. How much time was left.
1: That's amazing. Who's the greatest K-State basketball player that you've seen play?
0: Well, that's a hard one. Um, <laughs> a lot of them, aren't there? That's a, there's a lot of them. Uh, to me, the the greatest one that I have seen play was Willie Morrell. Hmm. And the reason is that he – he uh, I never saw – you know, I've, I've watched – um clips you know a boozer was was really another one that probably was in that league but willie could do so much that he he literally led us to the final four with he could he could when i was a freshman I, my freshman year in 1962 willie were transferred in as a junior college he comes up to Ahern Gym and we have a pickup game and I just I was just in awe of what he could do. He would shoot hook shots. He could he could do. A, he, he to me it was like an NBA player. I remember calling my dad and I said, "You won't believe that this Willie Morrell. I just played with. I've never played with anybody that good." And so to me. In my will, I know there have been a lot of other good ones. You know, Beasley was, but in, as far as the total player, the total person, and you talk about a a great guy, Willie would Willie would be a world Schweitzer. He was voted favorite man on campus. Had a wonderful laugh. I've never ever seen him mad. And I remember when they played, he told me that. When they played Wichita State, you know, to go to the Final Four, and he couldn't sleep much that night. But he told Tex, he said, "Don't, don't worry, Tex. I'll take care of things. We're going to win this game." Mm. And uh, he's so positive, and, and and such a good person. So he would be my number one pick. That's awesome, and I'm so glad that
1: uh, you helped bridge. Uh, his memory to a, a new generation of K State sports fans because he did kind of get lost in time. Bob Boozer seemed to survive time, but a lot of people had forgotten Willie morell other than mentions in the media guide. And it's good to have him up in the rafters, and it's so well deserved. He was a special player. Yeah, he
0: really was. And to get him and to see the change, you know, when I went to that nursing home, I mean, that was. His last, his last three years of his life were really good when he, and and the alumni association sent him all kinds of stuff. And yeah, he started posting stuff up in his room in a little, little cubby hole, you know, K-State stuff. And so that was, that was fun.
1: Okay. Give me your thoughts on the current state of college basketball and maybe the current state of Kansas state basketball.
0: Okay. Um, on Kansas State, well, on, on current basketball, I have gotten to where I, I don't like to watch um, I, I don't like the way they play now. Um, we used to attack the we, we attacked the basket when there was an opportunity. Now it's attacked the basket every, almost every time. And I don't like the um, uh, well. Well, for example, the here you got a thirty-second clock. Well, so what do most teams do? They they kind of walk the ball up, and they run dribble weaves at the top of the key that are no threat at all. So they waste ten seconds. Then you got twenty seconds to go, and suddenly somebody decides. You know, is there a move? Put a and then so somebody takes it and forces it to the goal with three people under the basket, knocks them over, looking for a call, or looks out of bounds and tries to hit somebody in the corner. It's boring basketball. Boring to me. So, so I, uh, uh, the, the team that I liked when I watched in the NCAA was – Sister Jean's team, of Chicago, mm-hmm. and so my son Nick, he knows how I feel about a lot of this. He said he called me and said, "Dad, you got to watch love." So I watch him play, and they use they use principles a lot of the triang, triangulate principles. Number one, they they had this center. I, I can't remember the names, but yeah. he would post up right on the free throw line. He's a white guy. He's about six yeah. eight. Not not real athletic. So they're playing Illinois, and I'm watching this game. Illinois has got, what, seven-foot center? He's standing behind behind him. So what is Loyola Chicago? Their entry pass is a bounce pass to the center who is standing on the free-throw line. Well, that's an immediate threat. And then they ran kind of a high post where they would cut and the guy would come off and he'd hand him the ball. And then he would pick and roll to the basket. And they were extremely effective. Illinois made no adjustments at halftime. All they had to do to stop that was instead of the big guy playing behind him, is to play on the side of him and deny that entry pass. Well, the next game, the team that played a zone against them and they lost. But watching Loyola Chicago play was so much fun. It it brought back, you know, players were moving and cutting. And the other thing I don't like about the current game is they don't keep the defense occupied away from the ball. So you come down, they dribble down, too much dribbling dribble 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 guy dribble turn dribble <clears throat> and they set what i call imaginary picks right. so if you watch even our offense you'll see a big guy run over and he'll do a jump step like setting a pick nobody gets picked they run by a guy like nothing and so and they run in circles so we have a circular offense and the triangle is, is whole predicated on direct cuts to the basket, you know, shortest distance. And so we got teams running in circles and then they put guys in the corner ready for the three point shot. Two guys are standing and they're easily defended. They should be interchanging. There should be movement going on constantly between. So if you have two, three point shooters, you don't just stand the guy in the corner. So we stand people now in a corner and that, you know, drives me nuts. And then on getting the ball inside, we don't uh, – Bill Self is one of the best coaches at using what Tech's called the line of deployment, and it's an imaginary line bisecting the basket at a 45-degree angle. And the entry pass should come from the wing, and when the guy is on the line, on the post, you can't, you can't really guard him most of the time our big guys are getting the ball too close to the baseline. So the baseline under the basket becomes a defender. Right. And I, I'm looking at that and I'm saying, I, I watch these games and I, and I, I, of course I'm just using my, the knowledge I learned from Tex Jack and cotton, but I'm telling Kay is said, these guys are making 2 million, 3 million, $4 million. I could go, and have a a clinic. Kobe Bryant did that, by the way. Kobe Bryant loved techs, and when they were on the road, he would go, and they would watch film by the hour. And then Kobe said he had this program on, was it ESPN? I can't remember the name of it. He had a program where, where he would help teams, you know, like scout scout. Mm -hmm. for teams. And he, and he used those principles. So today's basketball, uh, to me, it's, it's wreck ball. It's, it's, uh, force, force the ball to the basket, knock people over, over dribble. It's not fun to watch.
1: Hey, it's Fitz. Let's hit the pause button right here and take a little break
0: let's go it's the most all-star studded challenge ever and this time it's every competitor for themselves best challenge ever the challenge all-stars new season now streaming on paramount plus go to paramountplus.com to try it free terms apply
1: paramount plus and the national park foundation present a mountain of zen this earth week you can live stream seven national parks for seven days on paramount plus Paramount Plus, official streaming partner of the National Park Foundation. Well, let's shift gears now to talk about. Uh, you mentioned the stories you write, and you have a little thing called the Triangulate News, which I love the name, by the way. In fact, I I, I would love it if Manhattan renamed Triangle Park, text Winter Triangle Park. Um, and
0: I I tried to get that done. I went to the president's office, and they they would not go with it. Let's try but that. I, again. It should be. Well, I went to the president's office about getting the Triangle Park, and they said, well, they had this agreement, you know, with some kind of a deal that you couldn't put any any memorials there or whatever. But I really felt that that should be a tax winner. And then I went to uh, John Curry one time and said, you know, we've got to do something for tax. Is there any way we could just – because a lot of places have, you know, like a floor. Or... So they ended up putting up a little uh, sign in the, by uh, Bill Snyder Stadium, Tex Winter Drive. Mm-hmm. We, we did get that accomplished. But I agree with you. I think Triangle Park would have been perfect.
1: Well, it's kind of co-owned between the city and the school because yeah, that that, that was notched out when... Anderson didn't dead end to what's Aggieville and they connected it to Bluemont, So we ended up at Triangle Park. Yeah. Anyhow, your, your newsletter is yeah. amazing and I've gotten it for a long time. I think I need to update my email address on it, but how did you start that? And how long have you been doing the triangulate news?
0: Well, it all started when we honored Tex in 2010, uh, he was, when he was inducted into the NCAA uh, hall of fame in Kansas City in November of 2010. We, uh, I wrote to uh, all the former players and I said, Let's put a book together and uh, write up something about text, what he meant to you. And I got about 50 responses and we called the text messages. In fact, I called an older guy and I said, Hey, uh, I got a book, text messages. Can you uh, participate. And he says, he said, hell, I don't even have a cell phone. I can't text. I said, no, it's text message. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you got of texting. So anyway, uh, we presented the book to text and had a nice dinner. I, I set up a dinner at the union station and we had about, uh, oh, 20 players and, and wives came. And we, uh, that was the night before he was inducted. And then after that, Several players uh, said, you know, why don't we expand this book you did here? You, you know, a lot of people aren't in it. We didn't have Bob Boozer. We didn't have some of the big names. So I said, okay, well, why don't we We'll just expand text messages? So in 2014, I published a book, and I, I need to get, you know, we don't have any more copies of that book, but uh, yeah, 2014. And I call it, I call it text messages, but it's an expanded version of, um, of the text winter book. No, actually it was, I'm sorry, it was published in 2011. So a year later, I went and got a hold of everybody. I remember calling Bob Boozer so many times. I left messages. And finally, one time he called and he said, Larry, this is Bob Boozer. When is this going to (laughs) end? And so I called him back and I said, I got him on a Sunday night. And I said, Bob, it's going to end when you get in the book. We can't write a book without Bob Boozer. And we spent a whole hour on the phone and he was, uh, he sent me all his stuff. He sent me original stuff from his Olympic team. And suddenly I got all this stuff from Bob Boozer. And uh, so that was, that was kind of fun. But in that, that's the book that really, it's 350 pages. And I had the uh, Claflin Books published it and it's full of color pictures. And I think we sold 300 Copies. I I might have an extra copy that I can give you if you don't have one.
1: No, I don't. That's amazing.
0: But it would be you. It, it, it is like a, the Bible. That's what I use for this interview. I have. So what I did, I I went back and I started with the Tex Winter years and I took Nichols Jim and I started out when he came in nineteen. Uh, 47 as a freshman coach under under uh, Jack Gardner. And so I have all of the years, uh, all of the teams that he was involved with. And I had, there was no book with all team pictures. So I have team pictures during the 15 years he was head coach. And during the four years he was an assistant under, under Gardner. And then I have a list of all the coaches that 24 head coaches on one, on uh, one page up to Frank Martin. I, I don't have uh, Bruce Weber in print here, but I have their records, the percentage of wins. And then it really gives you an overview of, of what happened, you know, in K-State basketball.
1: Really neat, really neat. What are some of the favorite things you've written about in the Triangulate News?
0: Well, one of the one of my most favorite was was the story about uh, Milton Eisenhower. And um, actually, I went to uh, I had an opportunity to meet him, and I went to uh, when I was alumni director, we were going to give him an alumni medallion award in 1984. So I called him, and I said we would like he said well i I can't travel, but you can come to my place so we go there in nineteen eighty four I went to Baltimore and he was at Johns Hopkins the um, president emeritus of John Hopkins and he lives in this big suite up above this huge building so I go there and I had lunch with I had both kids with me they were eleven and fourteen and we went in and had a wonderful lunch with him. It was, it was one of the best experiences I ever had. And he told me uh, a lot of history about when coming to K-State, uh, told me about how he was after Pearl Harbor, you know, Roosevelt selected him as the head of the relocation of the Japanese. And he did that job for three months and he realized it was a terrible mistake. So he quit. And then about a year later, he came to K-State 1943 as president. And when he got here, um, some of the most significant things he did was was integrate the Big Seven. Um, There's a book that was written by, um, I think it was Steve Ambrose, uh, wrote a book about what it was like when Eisenhower arrived at Kansas State and uh, in 1943, there were 150 black students here, and they could not eat in any of the restaurants, they couldn't go to any barbershops, they couldn't even eat in the school cafeteria on campus, they couldn't swim in the school K-State swimming pool, and they couldn't play intramurals. And so Eisenhower um, – and I've written – I'll have to send you – I have the – I can send you the the story I did, which is much more detailed. But So Eisenhower then says, we're going to change all this, and he did it in a very subtle way. He called in the student body president, and he says, hey, do you have any objection if, if, if black students swim in the swimming pool? And the guy said – Well, no, not really. And so, next thing you know, they're swimming. Then he calls the AD and he says, "I want to, um, I want to start recruiting um, black athletes." And uh, the AD was not too hot on the idea at the time. And Eisenhower said, "Well, I'm not asking for an opinion. I'm telling you, we're going to recruit." So they recruited uh, the first. Um, recruit was Harold Robinson 1949 he was the first black athlete and I got all this information a lot of this from Gene Wilson when I did an a in-depth interview with Gene Wilson because he was the first uh, black basketball scholarship athlete in 1950 and, and he was telling me Gene was telling me how Eisenhower influenced uh, the bringing in Gene to, to to play basketball. He was waiting all this time until August, and Eisenhower was working the conference. Missouri and Oklahoma were against it. They said, we do not want – because it had to be approved by the coaches, the athletic directors, and the presidents of the universities. And so Eisenhower gets I, – I, he gets uh, – he really got with it and he told uh, OU in Missouri, well we're coming. We're we're playing, we're gonna have a black we're gonna have a black athlete. And they they compromised and said, Well, okay, if you 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 can when we play at you, your place, you know it's okay, but you can't do it at our place and Eisenhower said no, no way. So Gene Wilson was telling me all this and so Gene gets a call in August 1950 hey you can come to k-state we got it approved and so i did a real in-depth story on, on gene wilson and um that one is and he talks about how important eisenhower was was uh to the whole scheme of things
1: we don't i feel like kansas state doesn't I don't want to say boast about its history, but promote its history well enough of what a leader it was in civil rights for college athletics, at least in this area of the country. Uh, do you think that's an accurate assessment of the situation? We,
0: very, need to, very, we need to embrace it more? Very accurate, very accurate. Because the um, when I did this story on, well, another, another guy, another hero, it would be, um, Ray Watier was the baseball coach. And before he died, I did a story on him. He was up at Arc Hills. And um, he's the one that when they, he recruited Earl Woods, fire's dad to play baseball. And and so Earl was the first black baseball player. And Ray told me about the uh, the stories, how they would go, and uh, I remember, I can't remember what it was, maybe they were playing on the road in Mississippi, and the, the guy said, the coach said, well, you can all you can all play, but that one guy, you got to keep the black athlete, you know, he can't come off the bus, you got to keep him there. So Wathier just says, heck with you, and loads them all back up and didn't play. And so um, Air was really a, another coach that was was a big hero. But I agree with you. With, there's not. I think the will the uh, the real peanut is that that Milton Eisenhower through diplomacy. You know, he was a diplomat. He worked for six different presidents, and the way he did it, he did it one on one. He did it very subtly. In this book that I read by Steve Ambrose, talked about. Uh, how subtle he was at bringing this all together. And uh, you're right. K-State has not, uh, I mean, we we really were a leader in the nation on this whole thing.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it was such a strange time in our history, and it took such, I don't want to call it bravery of guys like, you know, to, to push back, but it did, and it, but most of all, it took the bravery of the student-athletes to stand up and say, yeah, I'll, I'll step into the middle of this storm, because it was a storm, and as Harold Robinson documented during his lifetime, he received some very nasty threats and words on the football field, and it, it probably is just overwhelming for a young person to handle.
0: Well, here's what happened. Gene Wilson told me this story that Harold Robinson, he played one year at 1949, and then he was dating a white girl. He was dating – her father was a professor. In fact, I had him in class. It was Dr. Helm, H-E-L-M. He was the – he taught history of sculpture and painting. Like 400 students, you know, turn the lights out, we'd all go to sleep watching his – Slides, but anyway, his daughter married and ran off with with Robinson to New Jersey, and they got married. and And then Gene said that it really got dicey after that. He used the term dicey. So in 1950, when he came, he said it was Gene and Earl Woods, and then Earl Schweitzer came to play football, and they he, they were the three Musketeers. And he said we were driving down. Manhattan Street one night, and we got pulled over by these white guys. They pulled them, ran them off the road. And here they're all sitting in the car: Gene Wilson, Earl Woods, and and Earl Schweitzer. And they said, is, uh, Robinson? You guys know where Robinson is?" Well, they, they 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 thought Harold Robinson might be in the car, and they said, "No, he's not. He's not here. He's not in the car." And so they left him alone. But he said it was – he called it a dicey time after the – you know, Harold Robinson marries his well, white gal. And uh, anyway.
1: Uh, Earl Woods, how much have you done on Earl and and how important he was to K-State sports?
0: Well, you know, I haven't done much. I, I should do more. I, I do know that when um, – I got this from the uh a good friend of mine who is in the mortuary business when um the Sexton at Manhattan Cemetery gets a call when Earl Earl Woods died and I'm trying to remember the the date on that but he the Sexton got a call from an attorney and he says I I'd like to have a a funeral in Manhattan, Kansas, in in Sunset Cemetery, but I can't tell you who it is. And you have to sign an agreement that you will not you will not reveal to anybody you know who who this person is. And then Sexton said, "Well, I got you know I got to know I got to know who." And finally, the Sexton said, "Well, it's Earl Woods, Tiger's dad, going to be buried in Sunset." Cemetery in Manhattan, Kansas. So, the sexton arranged for a secret ceremony, and Tiger comes into town. Nobody know, knew this, and evidently, I don't know whether he flew in on his jet or whatever. But anyway, Tiger comes, and the only person at the funeral is the sexton. And he said there was—I'm uh, the only Manhattan person. And then apparently there was a limo, and they took. Uh, Tiger wanted to see where his dad grew up, down on Yuma. And so he cruised down around town a little bit and then headed out of town. And the, the grave was unmarked, and I'm not sure if it's, if it's marked yet. But, uh, but Earl Woods is buried in Sunset Cemetery. But I, don't, I haven't done much um, other than stories from Ray Wathier, you know, who coached him in baseball, Oh, I do have one good I do have a, a good Earl Woods story that I that I did write about. Uh, Patty Keck, you know, Keck Steakhouse was east of 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 uh, Manhattan. That was the be the hot spot, Keck Steakhouse. Everybody go there. Well Patty Keck was in Earl Woods class at Manhattan High. And so one day we're at uh, Panera Bread or somewhere, and Patty, we've known her a long time. and we went over and started talking to her about Earl, and she said, "Oh yeah, we had our fiftieth reunion, Manhattan High reunion," and Earl came back for the reunion, and we got to talking, and he said, "He said, Patty, he said, you know, back when we had the the prom." junior, senior prom, you know, you remember what things were like, you know, we were on one side of the room. You were over there and we never could dance, you know, dancing with a white girl. And they said, that's always been something I've thought about. She said, well, Earl, why don't we have this dance now? So whatever, at the evening, they had a little party. So she's dancing with Earl Woods. Nice. I thought that was a cool. I thought that was a cool
1: story. That is a cool story. And you mentioned one and, of my favorite uh, people in the world, Verl Schweitzer. I mean, um of course I know oh, him from yeah. his time in the athletics department, but what a kind, wonderful soul he is. Yes.
0: And I need to I need to find out about or I, I, I haven't talked to him. I don't know how well I know he's still living. I'm, I don't know how well he is, mm-hmm. but I, I really need to go do uh, do the story on Burl. I, that's I've overlooked that. But uh, you're right. He, you know, a sad thing happened. He and Fern was his wife. They were they were walking one time. This has been years ago. Went for a walk, and she fell on a curve and hit her head. <laughs> And she went to the hospital, and they checked her out and said, yeah, you're okay. And and short while later, she had one of those subdermal hematomas mm. and died. Mm. They, they didn't catch it. So, you know, he's been a, yeah. a widower for a long time.
1: What a what an incredible player he was. You know, he's, he's really kind of the, the first K-State athlete to um, win notoriety, not because of his, you know, first African-American player to rise above that and just be recognized as an incredible player. He was an amazing football player.
0: Yeah, he was really from Nicodemus. Mm. And I think he he played, they didn't have a high school. He played at, was it Beloit or uh, I can't remember the, the school he played, the high school, but yeah, he was, he was, he was really something in his day. Back then they didn't even have face guards. You know that was.
1: You get less brave amazing. if your face isn't protected.
0: Yeah, yeah, I don't know how they
1: did it. I don't either. Um, I, I can tell you this: that generation is a lot tougher than my generation or those that followed. I, playing football that way is a little bit crazy to me. But um, yeah. do you feel do you feel like almost a sense of responsibility to to carry on this legacy, to tell this legacy? You've mentioned a couple guys you want to do some more stuff on. Um, you really are doing something really cool for K-State sports and not enough people know how to, you know, find, find your newsletter. And and we'll get to that in a second, but do you feel some weight of responsibility here?
0: Yeah, I do. And I, I was looking through, I didn't realize how much stuff when you said, let's do this podcast. I, I have all this stuff. I got this huge triangulate. I have stories written from, there's like 50 stories from 2013 to 2014, and then I I have the rest in some big notebook, and they're all kind of scattered around, and I need to really bring it all together. Um, somebody mentioned a uh, – I'm 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 not com- as computer savvy about stuff, but they mentioned doing a, a website where you could access – this information, you know, because it, there's so much that writing a book would not be, would would not do it justice because there's so many. And the reason I started Triangulate, the idea was to, uh, with like cell phone, you know, when you call, you go to a tower and the tower then goes to another person, so you got a triangle and you're communicating. And so my idea was Triangulate would be, let's communicate through talking and writing so that uh, a good example was Willie Morrell was in a nursing home in Denver and I located Willie and he's all there. They didn't even know who he was. And he's in this room with another roommate sheet between them. And I go and visit him in Denver and I did a little story and I thought, Holy cow. So I wrote a story. And so two guys, one guy in Denver, two guys picked up on the story and, the guy living in Denver, Gary Geisner, he played baseball here. He says, Oh my God. We... So he goes over with Willie and he invites him to his house. And and then we got him to come to the K state game when they played in in uh, Colorado state, they were playing in Denver. They got him K state paraphernalia and his whole life changed. And I went out there and I had a barbecue and he, he, well, he was still living and, and his last the beauty of it was that because of Triangulate, they read the story about Willie, and they go and then be, befriend him and shower him with, you know, attention. They take him to dinner, They're all, they go visit him, and then suddenly the people in the nursing home, like, who is this? Guy? They, they didn't even know he was an All American. Mm-hmm. And he's in Denver in a nursing home. You know, so that made that itself, that one, because I played, you know, Willie played when I played. I was a sophomore, and he was a senior on that final 14. But to see that happen was just phenomenal, uh, that these guys, and they, got, and they got it through reading. And I have, I have had other connections like that, where people will read a story, and all of a sudden they'll, you know, it'll, it'll jog their their uh, memory. I, I have uh, Fran Franchillo on Triangle 8. I have Norm Stewart. I have Ted Owens. Ted Owens has called me a couple of times. I have uh, I have other uh, non-K-State people. I've got Bob Davis, who is the voice of uh, the Jayhawks. He and I have been good friends for years. Um, he worked for my father-in-law at four days. He was a sportscaster. My father-in-law was the athletic director. So I have a mixture of people. It's not just K State, uh, and uh, it's really...
1: If someone wants to sign up for a Triangulate News, how can they get on your list, your email list?
0: Okay, the the, the easiest way is just to send me an email to uh, Larry dot Weigel W E I G E L at Keating, K E A T I N G I N C dot com. So it's Larry dot weigel at Keating Inc. com. Okay. And the reason I use that address, I'm still working, I work about maybe 10 hours a week out of my home office here. I have uh, over 30 years, I've had a lot of clients that still call me and need help with certain things, and I help them. So I've kept the Keating, e- I have a Hotmail address too, but I've kept the Keating email because it's so protected. We have a, Absolutely. you know, we, we have a backup full-time protected service, so it's very secure. So I just, keep and I use it for business too, so I kept using it with Triangulate.
1: Larry, I really appreciate it, the work you're doing with Triangulate News and kind of keeping the legacy of a golden era of Kansas State sports and Kansas State basketball alive is is really cool, and I appreciate it very much. And I appreciate you taking time from your day to to talk with everyone on the Life of Fitz podcast.
0: Yeah, you're welcome.
1: I appreciate it so much. Uh, it's been great, and I'm going to send you an email because I think my new email isn't on your newsletter, and okay. I'm sure more people do. Larry, appreciate it.
0: Okay,
1: thank you. How cool was that? I mean, how cool was that? Uh, I think we could have gone about three more hours there with Larry. Maybe we'll have to do him again. He is a incredible resource of Kansas State basketball history and we need to get all of those things. He's written about the history of K-State basketball in a form in which we can save it forever and I'm going to make sure he sends me his Milton Eisenhower story because that's a part of K-State history with which I am not familiar with enough and I need to be because it really changed the school and the conference in which they compete forever. Well, that's it for another edition of the Life of Fits. I will be on vacation for the next couple weeks, but the good news is I'm going to pre-record a few episodes of Life of Fits. so they'll be available for you during the first couple of weeks of July. Remember, men, if you're 45 and older, go get your PSA score checked. It's a simple blood test, and it is the best way for early detection of prostate cancer. Thanks for listening, everybody. I will talk to you real soon.